It's Tuesday, October 18th, 2022, and welcome back to Goodfellas, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow, and I'll be the moderator today of a conversation featuring three of my colleagues whom we jokingly refer to as the Hoover Goodfellows. That would be the historian Neil Ferguson, the economist John Cochran, the geostrategist Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, and H.R. I got to begin the show by asking, what is that ugly thing growing out of the top of your head? <laughs> Hey, it's the Phillies, you know, and, and I'll, I'll tell you, I think it's just a great story of a team that came together and peaked at the right time. So, you know, for, for Americans, when you get down about like the state of our you know, economy, the state of our, you know, our, of our uh, political situation and the vitriol associated with partisan politics, you know, we, we always make our way back. And the Phillies are a good example of that. HR, your Philadelphia Eagles happen to be the only undefeated team in the NFL right now. I want you to make a promise to me, my friend, that A, if they go to the Super Bowl, you will attend, and B, you will take a veteran NFL fan, Neil Ferguson, with you as your guest. <laughs> hey, I will try to attend. You know, I'll tell you, I, we, I was flying on Marine One with uh, President Trump and Bob Kraft, you know, the owner of the, uh, of, the, of the New England Patriots, and it was in the, in the spring of 2017, and Bob Kraft said, hey, will you take my photo? I said, Sure. And I, I, you know, they, they posed together and I said, okay, say go Eagles. And then Bob Kraft said, well, you know, I think the Eagles are pretty good this year. And of course the Eagles defeated the Patriots in the Super Bowl, you know, in, in, uh, in uh, February of the next year. Neil, I assume you'll be busy that Sunday. <laughs> no, I've actually always taken interest in the mutated form of rugby that you Americans oddly call football. And uh, I can't think of a better person to go to the Super Bowl with than HR. A, he can explain what's going on to me, and B, he secretly shares my preference for rugby, so we can kind of look down on the whole spectrum. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'd add another point. That's a lot true. of people drink at those games. HR is a good guy to have in your corner if a brawl breaks out, I think. So okay. let's get okay. on with the and, show. And it We're doing... It'll be competing with Six Nations, too. I'd like to actually actually rather go to Six Nations. In, in, uh, I'll, I'll take in you to Murrayfield one day, HR, and uh, we can see some real football, rugby football. <laughs> Okay, on with the show. This is something a little different this week. Rather than me throw a topic at you, we've asked you three to bring your topics. It's a BYOT, bring your own topic kind of episode. Neil, why don't you kick it off? Well, it, it's hard for me not to talk about what's been going on in, in London because London and the UK generally have become the butt of almost every joke. Uh, I was in Washington at the weekend for the International Monetary Fund uh, meeting. And every other speech included at least one joke about the UK economy or British politics. So I think I have a responsibility to Goodfellows uh, listeners, viewers, to explain what's going on. And uh, let, me, let me try and do this in a way that is uh, historically informed. To, to understand uh, British politics and indeed economics, you have to know that what appears to be the issue is not really the issue. Now, you might think that the dominant issue of British politics and economics of the last six years has been Brexit, Britain's departure from the European Union. And that's certainly been one of the dominant themes of political discussion and division. But I want to draw on the wisdom of my old mentor in Cambridge, Morris Cowling, one of the great historians who, who argued in a number of very influential books that you should always look past the apparent issue whether it's electoral reform or foreign policy. And remember that there's only one issue in politics, and that is the issue of who rules. And in the British case, the issue is which Oxford graduate 
member of the uh, Oxford University Conservative Association should be prime minister. This is the key to everything, because from the moment in 2016, when Boris Johnson decided to back Brexit, he created an opportunity for himself to displace David Cameron, another old Etonian and Oxford graduate, from number 10 Downing Street and become himself prime minister. But that didn't quite work out because Theresa May got in the way, another graduate of, that's right, Oxford University. And she uh, was prime minister in a kind of unpleasant uh, interregnum as she failed to get Brexit done. Then Boris became prime minister, got Brexit done, got hit by COVID, told so many fibs that eventually all Tory MPs ran out of patience with him. Uh, and then came Liz Truss, another graduate of, you've guessed it, Oxford University, and of course, a graduate in politics, philosophy, and economics. Now, this brings me to the economics part. John will confirm that if you want to study economics, you can't really get distracted by politics and philosophy at the same time. You have to actually focus on economics. The problem with Oxford is they never do that. They do a bit of politics, a bit of philosophy, a bit of economics. That's what Liz trusted. And that made her susceptible to the argument that uh, you could magically reignite growth in the British economy by cutting taxes, at the same time spending a ton of money subsidizing, subsidizing people's energy bills, and in the midst of a global inflation crisis in which central banks led by the Federal Reserve were tightening monetary policy. The idea that you could do this, I would have thought would have been easily exposed as futile and impossible at, I don't know, first year Chicago economics? But not even three years of PPE got Liz Truss uh, to understand that. And so what we saw in the last few weeks was a really absolutely classic uh, financial market veto of impossible uh, policies, mainly impossible fiscal policies that you could argue that the Bank of England contributed by being a little bit slow uh, to tighten interest rates. Anyway, this is a long-winded way of saying that over the last six years, Britain has apparently been arguing about its membership of the European Union, its future outside the European Union, but it hasn't at all. The real story of British politics is that it's about which Oxford graduate gets to be prime minister. And what makes it funny, and this is the last thing I'll say, is that they carry on behaving in Westminster, in national politics, just the way they behaved as undergraduates uh, in the in the early days. And, and I, I kind of like that about it, because it, it gives a sitcom feel to British politics that no other country's politics uh, have. Uh, there's a great book on this by a man named Simon Cooper called Chums, which tells this story uh, showing how really British politics is now a function of, of Oxford student politics, and it ex explains a lot, along with, of course, Morris Cowling's great insight that there is only one issue, and that is who rules. John? Well, I, I wanted to ask Neil about this in particular for the politics angle. I want to sound off on the economics where I, I disagree with Neil and the standard liberal intelligentsia that he has just signed <laughs> up with uh, heartily. The tragedy of this whole affair is that Liz Truss was right on the economics um, and a apparently a tragically ungifted messenger of a harsh message that is in fact uh, correct. Uh, remember, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were each derided by exactly the same uh, liberal intelligentsia on exactly the same grounds uh, and were exactly wrong. If, if anything, her 
problem was that her program was not um, radical enough. It certainly was not explained uh, well enough. I found that her and her first her first <laughs> chancellor of the Exchequer could not even use the word incentive, which is what's important here, and, and talked about putting money into people's pockets. And yes, starting off with the insane plan that we're going to pay everybody's energy bills, not even the, the German version, which is we're going to pay them up to an amount, but you still, you face the marginal consequences of your decision. Uh, subsidizing energy is not the way you start uh, the libertarian free market revolution. Uh, but it is not true that this is, uh, especially on the deregulation effort, uh, the UK is a very high tax, low growth, overregulated economy. If you're going to do Brexit, it is your only way out. Uh, let's become Singapore on Thames or maybe Switzerland is, is the answer. Otherwise, it's just uh, you know slow decay into high tax, overregulated irrelevance, which is uh, where they are heading. Um, you know, what matters in the end to bonds is your ability to pay off your debts over over decades, not a little bit of tweaking here and there. And there's no case that the UK is a low tax, even under her proposals. Oh, let's remember, Reagan uh, lowered the high marginal tax rate from 70% to 28%. We were talking about here not raising it from 40 to 45%, a grand total of 2 billion pounds on the budget. Compare that to 60 billion pounds on the stupid energy subsidies. That's just that's just nothing, a drop in the budget. And on that, and so Neil, you used to pay taxes in the UK, You know, 45% income tax, 20% value added tax, God knows property tax, national health insurance, taxes and all the rest of it. She was not proposing anything like libertarian nirvana here. Um, but in fact, starting to grow, getting back to innovative uh, deregulated growth is the only hope for the UK. And I think it's a great tragedy that um, her inability to communicate this and her political innovation, you know, Margaret Thatcher faced the same problem. She faced two years, three years of desperate economic times before it started to bear fruit. And she was the iron lady. I, th I think Liz Dress will go down as the straw lady, uh, having caved in in a grand total of a week on a much, uh, much less radical platform. So uh, um, to sum up, I think she was right on the economics, but uh, really sad to see such a, such, um, a, a poor messaging and poor politics of it, which is a tragedy for the UK, because so, now everyone will continue, all your friends will continue to say, oh, look at that ridiculous free market stuff and how it completely failed. And we all knew it would fail. And now you're, you're destined to another decade of, of uh, genteel decay. But I, I think, John, you, you've just pointed out why it wasn't Thatcherism at all. Uh, there was this huge spending commitment uh, to effectively subsidize uh, heating bills through through the, the energy crisis. If they had perhaps not uh, put so much money down there, the tax cuts might have had a, a chance, but it added up to a fiscally incredible uh, endeavor at a time when, uh, and here I'm going to uh, push back, at a time when uh, interest rates were clearly heading up from very low levels. Now, let's remember what Margaret Thatcher actually did, because Liz Truss, you know, she sold herself as the new Thatcher, just the way that Boris Johnson was supposed to be the new Winston Churchill. He turned out to be a kind of fake Churchill, and she turned out even quicker to be a fake Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher came to power winning an election in 1979. Liz Truss came to power with the support of members of the Conservative Party, a somewhat smaller mandate, since that's essentially a, hundred, a few hundred thousand people. Uh, Margaret Thatcher came to power after Labour had very clearly uh, crashed the economy in the 1970s. The Tories have been in power for 12 years. 
Uh, uh, so the political circumstances were different. Uh, Britain had, in effect, already begun to tighten fiscal and monetary policy under the outgoing Labour government. Uh, and the conditions were very different in 1979-80. Thatcher raised taxes because she knew that she had to establish uh, Britain's fiscal credibility. The IMF had been in Britain's uh, in Britain's treasury, sorting out the mess in 1976. Uh, whereas I think in, in this case, uh, they picked precisely the wrong moment to try and do an aggressive fiscal expansion. There's a global inflation problem. Central banks are all having to hike because the Fed is hiking. The Bank of England had actually surprised to the downside the day before the quasi-Quateng mini-budget that blew things up. So I think there was a double failure, a monetary policy and a fiscal policy failure. In the end, John, I don't disagree with you. The lower marginal tax rates would have been a good thing. And Britain is now going down a route that will certainly deliver lower growth. But in the end, from a political point of view, and I think also from a market's point of view, the whole thing lacked credibility. And it was one of the easiest things I had to predict this year that this would end in tears. Uh, and, and sure enough, she's now political roadkill. And the only question being discussed in London at the moment is who's going to replace her? And will it be this week, this month, this year? It's certain that she's not going to lead the Conservatives into the next election. Now, certainly what was more important was the deregulatory aspects, which we'll never get to. Uh, but, you know, the the the, the story that um, changing the top end tax rate from 45 to 40 percent or the middle one from 29 to 30 percent is a is, you know, on to Argentina or Venezuela. No, no, that's simply the not. Working. And, and if you want to look at the faults in what's going on in markets, the Bank of England is is uh, very largely responsible for the mess they're in. Now, there's this whole business with the pension funds where yeah. the Bank of England, who is busy regulating climate change, didn't notice, oh, my gosh, that the pension funds had levered themselves up into absolute delusional places and then went and then faced a classic margin call. I, I don't know if we want to get deep. It's a great finance story, which I'll tell. But as far as the ca catastrophe in the in the bond market, that is certainly much more to, to blame. And why are interest rates going up? Because everyone can see that the Bank of England is sooner or later are going to have to tighten after they try doing everything else. But we see, you know, we fiddle with tax rates 40 to 45 percent, 29 to 30 percent all the time, and you don't have bond market vigilantes going nuts. So what I will agree with is sort of that the, the politics of it were terrible. The timing, you don't start with the tax cuts. Uh, you start with the, with the other stuff. Uh, the messaging of it was terrible. And the grand tragedy is that the UK's one way out of genteel decay has now been closed off for a generation. Poor HR has been sitting there listening to us. Uh, hey, go as I said there. before, I'm applying for college credit for for economic and economics to you guys. You know, <laughs> well, let's, let's apply for, don't, just don't apply for PPE. Stick stick to <laughs> stick to economics. Then let us shift to HR. HR uh, wearing that ball cap, you're up. We are at What topic did you bring today? Well, I, I'd like to talk about Iran. I'd like to talk about Iran on a number of levels. First of all, I think you see the theocratic dictatorship at the greatest risk that it's been. You know, since maybe the time of the revolution, and and of course these these protests uh, and and the brutal repression of these protests have a couple things that are different from previous uh, previous uh, protests and 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 uh, and discontent uh, being voiced about about the, the the regime. First of all, they're countrywide, and second of all, instead of it being like a narrow issue like gas prices or you know or other issues that have sparked protests, this is really about the regime itself. And a desire to end this theocratic dictatorship. 
And I think that the Iranian people are now coming to the conclusion that their economic woes are due to the corruption of this dictatorship uh, and the diversion of, of resources away from what might improve their lives toward, you know, the, the four decade plus long proxy war the regime has been ha- has been fighting. And and then, of course, that proxy war has made them a pariah state uh, and denied a really rich culture and, and a country with tremendous, you know, economic potential uh, from realizing that potential. And so I, I think this is immensely important because it comes at a time when the Biden administration was pursuing, I think, a ridiculous approach to, to Iran. This is supplicating in pursuit of this Iran nuclear agreement, which would be a disaster, right? I mean, do you really trust the Iranian regime to to uh, to, to stop uh, their, their nuclear and, and missile programs? Of, uh, of course not. It would have been weak verification, a weak verification regime that would have just given them cover to continue the nuclear program, to continue to, to develop missiles and, and proliferate missiles and drones. Uh, but then also, I think what it, what it would have done is most significantly is give them sanctions relief that would fill the coffers of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps and allow them to intensify their proxy wars uh, against you know, the United States, their Arab neighbors, Israel, and now Ukraine, because Iran is providing these kamikaze drones to the Russians. The Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps has deployed troops to, to the Russian-occupied portions of Ukraine to help them assemble and to train them on the use of these drones. And what do you think might happen next? I think what's going to happen next is you're going to see Iranian missiles, because what Iran has done in recent years, without really very much attention being paid to it, is perfect a drone missile strike complex, which they have used themselves, but they've also exported to proxy forces, especially the Houthis, who have used this drone missile complex against the United Arab Emirates and against Saudi Arabia, which, by the way, (laughs) helps explain why the UAE and the Saudis are so upset with us and are not helping out on global energy, for example, is because we removed the the designation of the Houthis as a terrorist organization, even as their countries are being bombarded uh, by by the Houthis. And so I think what we see here is, is how interconnected these problem sets are how the problem set associated with Iran is connected to the problem set associated with with Russia and and the the ongoing brutal war against Ukraine. And of course, is connected to China as well, because China has really helped Iran circumvent uh, the sanctions by purchasing more and more oil from Iran, which again gives them, gives the theocratic dictatorship, uh, Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei, the, the, the resources that he and the IRGC need to prosecute the war. What happens next? I think Iran is going to be continue to become more aggressive unless they're hit back hard in a way that communicates, hey, we know the return address for, for what's happening in eastern Ukraine, what's happening in UAE and, and, and Saudi Arabia. And if we don't, I think they're going to be emboldened to use the proxy army they have in Syria, to use now precision rockets they've been developing uh, and, and placing with Hezbollah and, and Hamas to threaten Israel. And I think as the regime gets backed into a corner, the threat to Israel is going to go up uh, unless we and others act together uh, to diminish the threat from the Iranian regime. Uh, So I do see the conditions set not only for continued internal violence and and demonstrations and actions against the regime, which, of course, are being brutally repressed, 
uh, and and uh, and 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 an external intensification of the proxy war. I'll just tell you one quick story about how brutal this regime has has been. A a friend uh, who is is from a particular town uh, in, in in Iran sent uh, sent me a story that he had received uh, from uh, from parents of, of a high school daughter in a, in a girls' high school, and and the school was forced by the headmaster to go outside and to chant pro regime. Uh, slogans. Instead, they started chanting anti-regime slogans. The head of the school called the Bashijin, you know, who are sort of the, you know, the fascist like brown shirts that that uh, protect the regime, and they beat high school girls. They mur- they killed one of them. They beat one of them to death, and, and sent many others to the hospital. So we should be under no illusions about the nature of this regime. And it's time. I think it's time to stop the delusion, you know, that this uh, the Biden administration has been under that somehow they can kind of cut a deal uh, with the with the Iranians, and that would be a positive thing. HR, I have a question for you. Uh, I remember, I'm old enough, uh, the axis of evil. Uh, yes. and, and that was, I think, a David Frum line for uh, a George it W. Bush speech. Uh, yep. That wasn't much of an axis in terms of actual cooperation. It feels like we're up against much more of an axis, I don't know if it's of evil or ill will today, because as you rightly point out, Russia, Iran, and China are in various ways cooperating. Uh, what do we do about that beyond, as you put it, striking back at Iran? If, if there is an authentic axis forming, doesn't that raise the dangerous possibility of multiple crises, not only in Ukraine, but potentially also in the Middle East and then in East Asia over Taiwan? What if that all happens at once in the next few years? Well, I think I think it's coming, Neil. And, and we didn't even mention, you know, the, the the missile test that North Korea has been conducting, and then stating, "Hey, what we're doing is we're practicing a preemptive nuclear strike, a preemptive nuclear right. strike." And and I think this is really the the regime announcing its intention to use nuclear weapons, the North Korean regime, uh, as blackmail or, or as for to extort uh, the United States and push us off the Korean Peninsula as the first step of pursuing what they call red-colored unification. <clears throat> and I know when people hear that, they think, well, that sounds kind of Dr. Evil-esque, you know, for Kim Jong-un. You know, how is that possible? But this is this is their ideology. I mean, this is really what the regime has tried to do. But you know what we've done over the years? We mirror image them. We thought, oh, they must want nuclear weapons for deterrent purposes. And so I think our misunderstanding, I think, has, has led uh, to ineffective policies over time on North Korea. And I think, you know, that problem set goes back to China. I mean, you know, President Trump, I'll tell you, one thing that he said to, to Xi Jinping often, which I think was was helpful uh, to, to the cause of denuclearization, he would say, you know, if you wanted to, you could solve this problem overnight. Well, he really could. But China is using, of course, North Korea as, as a buffer, you know, to, to prevent really, you know, the United States and Japan and others from being on, on, on his doorstep or from being in a, in, a, in a very strong position in Northeast Asia. So all these problem sets are, as you're pointing out, interconnected. We are set up for cascading crises this year. But what do you do about it is your question. What you do is you deter through strength. You know, weakness is provocative. And and I think that whereas we keep talking about we're pivoting out of the Middle East. Well, you know, the the Emiratis and the Saudis, they hear us. They think we really are leaving the Middle East. So what are they doing? They're hedging with Russia. They're hedging with China. If we were to, to say we're committed to maintaining and being part of a very strong security architecture uh, in the Middle East, along with partner and like-minded countries, 
that would be a different message to them. And I think we'd see different behavior on, on, on their part. You know, if we were to employ all the economic and financial tools we have available to us uh, to include secondary sanctions on financial institutions that facilitate the circumvention of, of sanctions like, or, like Iranian oil sales, on Chinese banks, for example, or on Chinese banks that are that are that are really helping to sustain Russia's war making machine. Hey, that would be a pretty significant thing. I mean, I think just secondary sanctions on one or two Chinese banks, given the economic and financial situation they're in, that would be, I think, a significant deterrent to, to continued you know, destabilizing behavior and support. And then, of course, uh, on Ukraine, I think provide the Ukrainians with the capabilities they need to interdict with long-range surveillance and, and, and weapons capabilities, the resupply of, of drones and what I think in the, in the near future will be missiles uh, from, uh, from Iran. So there's a whole, there are a whole range of actions we could take to portray strength you know, and unity across our, our alliance. But I, I don't see us really stepping up yet. I mean, I, hopefully the Biden administration will in recognition uh, that we are facing these, these multiple potential crises simultaneously. I, I, I have a ton of questions and I'll try to keep them short for once uh, so long as I can ask a couple of them uh, on first first Iran and and then and then China um yes the, you know the, the missiles and, and the exporting missiles it's always struck me that by focusing on nuke 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 and ignoring regional misbehavior terrorism and missiles uh we're, we're focusing on perhaps the the wrong problem but it seems to me it, first it seems to say something incredible about Russia that it has to import from Iran what looked to me like model airplanes with a Garmin GPS strapped on them. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the hey, John, not to mention they're buying, they're buying ammo. They're buying ammo from North Korea, too, by the way. Yeah. So, so much for the great Russian military machine. This is in some sense that, first of all, that strategically they are down to something that looks about as effective as V-1 rockets in London in 1944. Uh, and, you know, just randomly sending drones out for apartment buildings. Uh, and then that they have to supply these from Iran. Seems like sort of a tragedy for, for what's going on in Russia, no? John, a quick point of information. They're, they're not just targeting apartment buildings. They're, they're targeting infrastructure. They are causing significant disruption of, uh, of Ukrainian electrical supply. So it's not just, uh, it's not do doodle bugs from World War II. It's a bit more. No, serious. thank you. And they are they are targeting with some precision, not just totally random, but not apparently the enormous precision of I gather HIMARS can basically send a missile down a gopher hole. Uh, so yeah, uh, and, but the strategy also the larger question the strategy is is sort of destroy civilian infrastructure, uh, which we know from World War II doesn't work as opposed to the strategy of you know something militarily effective. Well, I, I think that I think the target is is Ukrainian will. So this new Russian commander who's recently been appointed uh, is the same commander who presided over the, the the rubbling of one of the one of the most beautiful cities in the Middle East, Aleppo. And so, uh, as soon after he took over, you know, he began the you know the what they called the reprisal strike after the Ukrainians hit the Kerch Strait bridge. And and what he believes, I, I think, is that he can he can affect. Ukraine's will to fight negatively by taking out the power infrastructure, by giving facing people with the prospect of, of not being able to stay warm in, in the winter, and then uh, and then and then inflicting casualties but by this targeting. Is, this is a this is tells you how weak Russia is. Tell me, my two historian friends, how well does it work to uh, destroy to to try to reduce the will of a population like Ukraine to fight yeah. just by turning off the power? 
Uh, how well did that work in London in the 1940s? How did that work in, in Berlin in the 1940s? Uh, this is complete. We know that's ineffective. I, I just for the book say, I'd like to recommend on this is Conrad Crane, my old colleague in the history department at West Point, wrote a great book called Bombs, Cities, and Civilians. I, I highly recommend it for exactly this point. I'm sorry, Neil. I was just going to say, though, uh, John, uh, wearing uh, uh, an economist hat, you, you'd you be struck by how weak the uh, Ukrainian economic situation is right oh, yes. now. The deficits uh, are not fully covered by U.S. and European aid. Uh, inflation is rising uh, rapidly. The Ukrainian government uh, is very concerned about that, as I discovered when I was there four weeks ago. And so what I think is happening here is a little bit different. It's not just about morale. It's about trying to exacerbate the crisis of the Ukrainian economy. The Ukrainian front line is going extraordinarily well. The Ukrainians have been making gains. They clearly have the upper hand in the battlefield because the Russian army is demoralized and has suffered heavy casualties. But the Russians know that, uh, as I pointed out in the Bloomberg uh, column after I'd been in Kyiv, the Ukrainian economy is not as strong uh, as the Ukrainian offensive capability. And that, I think, is part of the rationale here. You know, I'd like to ask you guys a question on this. So, of course, how about the Russian economy, right? So I just heard the story uh, where, you know, a a auto plant outside of St. Petersburg that employed 15,000 workers just shut down. Uh, because of the sanctions and and can't keep the production line open, you know uh, you've have your tremendous uh, impact of brain drain on 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 the economy now. I, I know it's hard to tell because the the, the data is not available, but to to the extent this is 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 a, a race to see you know who can feel the most economic pain and endure it. Uh, how do you see the Russian economy? Well, let me give you a simple fact. Numbers? IMF projects Russia's GDP will contract by around 3% this year. Ukraine is looking at something more like 30, 30%. So there is no question in my mind that, that the Ukrainian economy is under much greater stress as you'd expect because it's them uh, who've it's been in their country. <laughs> it's their productive capacity that's being destroyed. Uh, and so, yeah, it's not at all symmetrical. Apart from anything else, Russia is a significantly bigger economy. But uh, this war is is widening that discrepancy. And, and that is, I think, a, a really serious concern from the point of view of those of us who support Ukraine. This is David v. Goliath. But I don't know, if you run David v. Goliath 100 times, does David always win? You've got to worry, is- you worry about where we are a year from now. This is an you know, economic this- problem. The U.S. could do a lot to help. I mean, the, the numbers are actually quite small for the tens of billions that Ukraine needs. We left a trillion bucks on the ground in Af- Afghanistan. We left five trillion bucks on the ground in COVID. So, um, you know, greater help from the West in terms of money would be one of the easiest things we could do. And a little bit of uh, better air defenses. You know, why in the world? <laughs> I don't. Th- I don't think. Uh, subsonic drones that look about like a big model airplane would last that long over the U.S. guys. So a bit of air defenses would be nice too. Okay, can I ask another question? So to what extent is this an axis of evil versus an axis of convenience uh, with many of its own uh, problems? Um, you know, we, we already seen, if Russia starts losing, the, the Chinese commitment to Russia is already questionable. Uh, these these guys uh, seem to be all having their own problems and not particularly committed to each other, other than they're just up against the uh, common person. And and in particular, so Iran has major internal problems. Uh, is this finally the moment that uh, that that things flash up and that all comes crashing down? Yeah, I'll tell you, I I think that the supreme leader and and you know, the revolutionary cadres that and and and, and uh, you know. 
Ayatollah Khomeini, who was, who was before him, have set conditions that are similar to the collapse of the Persian Empire and the collapse of the Shah. You know, lots of external problems, not meeting the expectations of the, of the population. And, uh, and, and I, I really think that, uh, that, that the, you know, the regime is in a very, very weak state. Of course, and no one believes have... it anymore, right? I mean, for what I gather from surveys is, you know, the number of people who say, yes, this is the right thing. This is what we want. We, we go for the propaganda is now down to, to essentially nobody. So, so some of these protests have happened in Qom, you know, which is the, you know, which is the, the you know, the religious center for the Iranian brand, brand of, of Shiism. And, and they're hap- the protests are happening in some of the rural areas as well that has been kind of the stronghold of the theocratic dictatorship. So I, I think you're right, John, that this is this is a wholesale questioning of the of the you know of the of the ideology that underpins so, so, the dictatorship. So just there is great weakness in Iran. You, you sort of had this axis of evil ready to go. There's great weakness in Russia, which is not just uh, not just economic. Sooner or later, people in Russia are going to say, you know, I want the guys who know how to fight uh, ready for the internal battle, not not to go waste them all in in Ukraine. And I want to ask I want to ask more about China. So this is the the week of Xi's coronation, <laughs> apparently, but. Um, Growth is slowing down. Growth seems impossible if you if you want to run your tech sector uh, politically. Uh, hello, uh, U.S. government. This that's a problem too. Um, so uh, you know his own legitimacy and and issues are going to be in trouble. There's the property uh, issue is just you know that's the zombie of the Chinese economy. Uh, empty apartments, uh, blowing up more apartments. And the one I noticed this week was, um, I want to see if finally I found uh, the U.S. going too far on on economic war against China. Uh, the uh, banning of U.S. people or semiconductor sales to China, <clears throat> essentially wiping them out of the ability to make modern semiconductors. Now, if, if we're doing economic warfare, maybe, but that seems one that I'd, I'd like to hear, you know, you put your geostrategic hat on and say, maybe, this was one that was a, a, a very far-reaching and dangerous one. Uh, one thought, what do you do if you're China and, and you can't uh, access the world's technology, even if you were willing to buy it? The answer is you have to steal it even doubly more so than you did before. How does China respond to being cut out of, uh, of advanced semiconductors? Well, I can quote from an excellent new book, Chip War, by my former student, uh, Professor Christopher Miller, which is a must read. It's, it's the history of semiconductors, of, of microchips, and it comes uh, from the earliest uh, days right up to the present. And I had the privilege uh, of speaking with Chris at the Commonwealth Club just last night. And I asked him this question. Uh, I said, look, it, it, it seems like the US has been ramping up its economic warfare uh, against China really since 2018, if not uh, earlier sort of started uh, not just with tariffs, but with actually putting Huawei on the entity list. Uh, that Then, of course, you have the, the CHIPS Act, which is designed to beef up US uh, semiconductor production domestically. But the key recent move, which is very recent indeed, is the Biden administration is essentially saying, we are going to cut China off from advanced semiconductors. Uh, we're going to make it impossible for Americans to work for Chinese companies right. that uh, are attempting uh, to advance China's semiconductor industry. So I said to Chris, isn't this a little bit like uh, the sanctions that the US imposed on Japan in the late 30s and early 40s that ultimately led to Pearl Harbor? And his response was fascinating. He said, not really, because these are very targeted. 
The very clear objective of the Biden administration is what they call sci-tech hegemony. They want to make sure that China never catches up with us, and to be exact, with us and our partners, including Taiwan, when it comes to very high-end semiconductor manufacturer. The low-end semiconductors the Chinese can make to their heart's content, uh, but they're not going to get access to the kind of manufacturing technology they need to produce the very top-flight ones that are produced in, uh, in Taiwan at TSMC. And so it's not quite like that late 30s World War II analogy. Still, from China's point of view, if you just accept this, you're effectively accepting that you'll never catch up with the United States and its allies. And my question for HR is, what are China's counter moves at this point? Because the chokehold is real. And it's not clear to me that domestically they can just create their own TSMC, nor can they just invade Taiwan and take over TSMC. That that option, I think you would agree, wouldn't uh, likely work. So do they have any options to retaliate in this economic war? Yeah, they do have options. But first of all, let me just say, they did it to themselves. They'd be in the Chinese Communist Party, right? So, John, I mean, the difference is doing business with a Chinese company is not like doing business with, you know, a company in, in a free market economic system. They must act by law as an extension of the CCP and as an extension of the People's Liberation Army. I mean, in one case, and I won't go into the specifics on this, I'm writing an essay about this now to give examples, but two U.S. firms raised $700 million, invested in a Chinese company, which now does all the battlefield artificial intelligence for the People's Liberation Army, Navy, and Air Force. That's crazy, right? And then, and then, of course, I'm sure with those investors got a lot of U.S. expertise to help make the, that company successful. The 28 people who can no longer go to work in Chinese companies, I mean, I'm fine with that. They ought to be ashamed of themselves anyway. So I, I just think that you know that, that this was a, a smart move, but to Neil's point, uh, and a long overdue move. Uh, but because I mean, th these are companies that are developing the components for weapon systems that the PLA may use to kill our grandchildren. I mean, that, that's well, how I, I see it. And then, also, and then the other- 99% of what they do is other stuff. So this is the classic problem of dual use, well, 99%. So, but but let's, let, here's a, here's a uh, let me try to make the optimist. One thing China can do about this is uh, quite simply buy. <laughs> uh, you don't have to produce absolutely everything at home. In fact, we do not produce everything at home. There is one company, uh, it's a Dutch company that makes the lithographs that do it's advanced ASML. semiconductors. Yeah. It is not located in the United States. What do we do? We buy from them. You, you have you need the global economy. So, so China could, this does not have to be an economic problem for China at all, so long as we're not at war with them because they can buy the stuff that they can't well, produce at home, which is great. I think I think that this there has been a very strong multilateral approach with this and uh, with, you know, with, with the, with, with uh, you know, the, the Dutch and ASML, you know, uh, with uh, Japan, you know, with other countries that have really key, a key role in uh, in, in uh, semiconductor and micro microelectronics manufacturing. I think the, I think I think the administration has done a lot more work behind the scenes. These these countries have not yet come forward in full support of this, but but the way that th these restrictions are written, these companies, you know, will, would be penalized severely if they if they if they violated the, the law and and uh, or the or the policy. The other, to Neil's point on what could the you know what could the retribution be, China has done a a phenomenal job under under uh, Made in China 2025. 
in, in gaining control uh, over very critical supply chains that include the upstream components of semiconductors. And, you know, this is, this is uh, you know, this, these are rare earths and other minerals, but also it's, it's not just the mining, but it's the separation and refinement process associated with them. So there is a race going on. You know, to shore up supply chains that we've talked about previously that have become too biased in favor of efficiency, and we have then you know made ourselves vulnerable to single points of of, of failure. The other the other point though that wait, I wait if I could is, HR on that one. Uh, so uh, the supply chain for lithium, cobalt, rare earths, solar panels. It is not a question of efficiency. It's a question of outsourcing the environmental consequences. Uh, The U.S. doesn't want to face the fact that you have to burn a lot of coal to make a solar panel and that you have to remove mountaintops to make a mine. And so we're allowing that. So it's perhaps you want to call it efficiency and perhaps you want to call it virtue signaling. But really, that's. Well, yeah, that's right. Outsourcing, you know, the pollution and and uh, and carbon emissions or, or offshoring that. As if, as if the carbon particles, you know, adhere to the boundary of a particular country. Exactly. You know, so, so I, I do, I do think we're, we're we're coming to grips with all this now. Finally, though, which I'm I'm happy about, and I would just say, finally, you know, that we have to recognize Xi Jinping has been upfront with this in terms of his description of the dual circulation economy, and what he's basically saying is, hey, we don't need you anymore, the West, United States, we need your technology because they stole it, right? They stole it, or they incentivized. Americans who were useful idiots to, to use the, the, the you know, maybe the most uh, you know the, the most gracious term or you know I, I could use here uh, to to assist them in developing these technological capabilities under the thousand, thousand talents program and and so forth. Hey man, if the Chinese Communist Party is offering you like you know a million dollars uh, you know to do research at Tsinghua University, don't you think you ought to scratch your head, man? You know and say, gee, I wonder what they're going to use this for. So, but besides that, Xi Jinping has been. You know, quite clear on his intention to develop a dual circulation economy in which China is insulated from any prospect of financial or economic consequences associated with Chinese aggressive action vis-a-vis Taiwan or in the South China Sea, while he creates dependencies on China for everything. You know, he wants to be the lead, you know, in, in advanced manufacturing. He wants us to be wholly dependent uh, on China, you know, for, for critical supply chains. So I think that this, these actions, this, you know, the, this combination of actions associated with economic statecraft uh, are long overdue. And I know it cuts against, you know, your sensibilities, John, and all of ours, you know, uh, who, who believe in the free market as the best way to allocate resources. You know, we don't want to become the CCP, you know, and make the same mistakes they've done in terms of their doubling down on, on national champions and state-owned enterprises. But I think this was this these actions were necessary based on the nature of China's authoritarian mercantilist model, how they've weaponized it against us, and based on the intentions of Xi Jinping and, and the CCP. Hey, John, I have a question for you on this subject. Uh, let, let's try and think about this in, in economic terms. Uh, so 92%, I think it is, of the, the really top-level semiconductors are manufactured by TS. MC in Taiwan. Taiwan, as you may have heard from uh, President Xi Jinping, uh, belongs to China in his eyes. And he has also made it clear that he's prepared to use force if they won't come peacefully back into the fold. So what does one do about that? Uh, Is the CHIPS Act the solution? dole out money from uh, federal uh, taxpayers to build semiconductor capacity in the US, I'm guessing you're going to say no to that. 
But if not, then what do we do? Because there's a huge vulnerability right there uh, in the way that outsourcing has allowed semiconductor uh, skill uh, to be concentrated in one pretty vulnerable spot. Well, I think the, uh, the CHIPS Act was unnecessary because the people who make semiconductors understood their vulnerability and we're going to put them in, uh, we're going to put that capacity in anyway. Um, so I, I would prefer that if you're going to do things for defense reasons, you put it on the defense budget, but I don't I don't think you, you had to in this case. So that, that was a pretty straightforward one. Um, the economic question. So I always, uh, I guess I've been trained by military people too much to also think about what my enemy's weaknesses are. And uh, Xi Jinping seems to be standing upon a powder keg of weaknesses, as as well as uh, his desire to to run a big industrial policy. And and we can remember how successful Chinese industrial policy has been in the past, starting in the Great Leap Forward, uh, where they were going to take over steel production. So I, I wouldn't guarantee that simply a de- declaration of intent to take over the hardest things in the world to do that are so difficult that not even the U.S. can do them on their own is is a guarantee of success in that project. Hey, speaking of the Cultural Revolution, Neil, did you see the story about the, uh, you know, the Consul General in Birmingham being party to beating up uh, protesters, you know, on public land outside of the consulate? And and uh, and I, I saw one piece that juxtaposed that image with, you know, with uh, Chinese consular officials beating up British citizens during the Cultural Revolution. And I just think that this, you know, we, we tend to undersell or underappreciate the degree to which ideology is driving and constraining the CCP. I mean, I think it's, this is, you know, Xi Jinping's given us full Mao Zedong right now. Well, well ideology is what you go on to when you don't have results. Right. It's certainly wolf warrior diplomacy to the max when your diplomats start, in fact, uh, engaging in assault and, and battery. I think you're right, HR. We we have a tendency to underestimate how ideological Xi Jinping's regime is. I think that's because a lot of American businessmen over the last two decades have spent time in Beijing and Shanghai, and they've fallen into the trap that many people fell into when they visited the Soviet Union in the 1930s. They come back saying, I've seen the future, and it works. And you know, I wish I had a Bitcoin for all those books predicting a Chinese century. Uh, but it, but in reality, if you go away from the big cities, you discover that there is a world of economic trouble in the tier three cities. Now, this is I know this because of a brilliant new paper that Ken Rogoff has just uh, co-authored uh, with the excellent title, A Tale of Tier Three Cities. And he shows that, that these cities, which are about half of the urban capacity of China, are where the real financial disaster is unfolding. Uh, there has been enormous building of infrastructure, including residential infrastructure, tons of money. Nobody wants to live there. The population of these cities is falling. So if you want to find the tower blocks for nobody, then you go look at these tier three cities, which are the ones we tend not to visit when we go to China. So I think as things go wrong economically, uh, there is a kind of spiral where the ideological uh, and coercive power of the party becomes greater because it has to become greater. It's no longer delivering rising prosperity. In fact, for young Chinese, it's not even delivering employment because youth employment is at a, an extraordinarily high level. So I think we can expect, although it's in the middle of the party congress, who quite knows what's going to happen in the next few days. But I think we can expect this ideological tendency to become more pronounced. The personality cult 
to become more pronounced. That's the thing I've been struck by, how big a personality cult there is now around Xi Jinping, including stuff that really does recall the Cultural Revolution. I heard that there's now a, a, a little a chair in a, in, a, in a bun shop in Beijing, which is fenced off with a kind of silk rope because Xi Jinping once went in and ordered a bun there and, and ate the bun. That's straight out of the Cultural Revolution. Our, our colleague Frank Decurter has written brilliantly about this. So I think these tendencies are going to get more pronounced. What I can't tell is, does this make China more dangerous? Does it increase the probability of some risky move against Taiwan? Or, as in Mao's time, do the internal weaknesses and the internecine fighting ultimately reduce the threat that China poses to the rest of the world? I wish I knew the answer to that, but we're going to find out in the next few years. It certainly reveals weakness. The reason you turn to this sort of stuff is because you're afraid. Both ideology, uh, well, especially ideology and, and personality cult. You know, uh, if you have to stand up and say ridiculous things, then we learn who really is with you and who isn't. So, and and then you turn, you rule by fear rather than by uh, by approval. HR, I'll give you the last word on this. Yeah, I don't, I don't know either. I think Neil poses exactly the right question. You know, does this make uh, China more or less dangerous? You know, I think we had that old saying. Hey, we have more to fear from a you know from a, a weak China than a strong China. I mean, I, I never agree with that though. You know, because. China was under the control of the Chinese Communist Party. So now that we're starting to see these weaknesses, I think we have to be prepared, you know, for kind of a, a lashing out of, of, of some kind, you know, and, and, you know, Xi Jinping has shown that he doesn't reassess, right? He doesn't back off. He doubles down. He's doubled down on zero COVID. He doubled down on the crackdown on the tech sector. So will he double down on Taiwan? Will he double down on the South China Sea? And and I think this this cult of personality is is a cause for concern, as well as the party's fear of losing control and and, and their obsession, you know, with extending and tightening their exclusive grip on power. And this is, of course, is another example where you know we've kind of sadly aided and abetted this with a lot of U.S. financing that went into companies like SenseTime and Hikvision, you know, that, that are really the backbone to the technologically enabled Orwellian police state that he's in a race to establish because of that fear. Right. So and he's used COVID to extend, you know, to extend that, you know, the, the, the power of the surveillance state and to police the thoughts uh, of the Chinese people. So uh, I'll tell you, I, it's going to be a hell of a year. You know, I mean, I think there's lots of material for Goodfellas, you know, coming up here in the next few months. And thank you for mentioning COVID, HR, because that's the last topic I want to get into today. If you go back to the first episode of Goodfellas, the air date was April 1st, 2020. Guys, I think they told you this only been on for about a month or so. So you got you got to take it up the river. Uh, but you go back to that episode, you'll see Neil, John, and HR talking about whether a health crisis would turn into an economic and financial crisis. Gee, John, how did that turn out? Um, well, it wasn't as, as there was a feared financial crisis yes. with bankruptcies that was papered over with $5 trillion of money, and now we have inflation. So uh, we got the V-shaped recession. We answered that question of, of what a supply shock recession would be like. So things could be a lot worse, but they're not great. Right. So Neil Hughes wrote, I want to find out on the COVID front. Dr. Fauci was making the rounds on TV last weekend, as he has wont to do. And he warned us that two subvariants of Omicron are on the way, BQ1 and BQ1.1. In his words, they possess, quote, qualities or characteristics that could evade some of the interventions we have. You have a federal emergency already in place, Neil, through next January. California just lifted its COVID emergency, though it still applies through the end of February. A statistic for you, as few as 13 to 15 million Americans right now receive the latest Moderna 
Moderna or Pfizer jab. That's about 5% of the eligible population. I can tell you anecdotally from having been on airplanes recently, fewer people are masking. The airlines don't even do the PSA announcement asking if you'd have the courtesy of wearing a mask. The question for you, Neil, COVID may not be over, but does it seem like the public is over COVID? Yeah, I mean, this was a central theme of of my book, Doom, that we would sort of get bored of, of the pandemic before it got bored of us. If you if you look at the numbers for hospitalization and, and death uh, way down uh, relative to where they were in 2020 and 2021, uh, but I think it's a little complacent, uh, uh, particularly of older Americans, not to get uh, vaccinated. And I certainly got the new updated booster ahead of some travel that I had to do. Look, the thing about COVID is it's not like uh, influenza. It mutates faster. And uh, in that sense, we can't, I think, regard it as having already become like twin brother to the seasonal flu. It's definitely going to pose a bigger risk. But here's the good news. Uh, Most Americans, and I should think it's also true in Europe too, have had COVID. Uh, A number, uh, a very substantial proportion have had it more than once. And and that gives quite a lot of protection, quite apart from the vaccines. It's different in China, because in China, they have not been exposed to the virus because of the zero COVID policy. They haven't been vaccinated. And the elderly are particularly poorly protected because the Chinese vaccines aren't any good. So while we have to accept that COVID hasn't gone away, even though we got bored of it, Uh, Mm -hmm. We face a much smaller risk this fall uh, and uh, winter than China does. China can't, in fact, reopen. Zero COVID is a policy that can't be lifted because the Chinese population is extraordinarily vulnerable to any variant, uh, but particularly the the latest variants. And if they were to suddenly lift restrictions, you could be looking at up to 2 million deaths, which is why zero COVID isn't about to be lifted. That, I think, is the most important point to make about COVID right now. What Mm. looked to many people in 2020 like the right policy, very strict lockdowns, draconian punishments, the things they tried to do in California but basically couldn't make work has turned out to be quite the wrong policy. And it's boxed China in, not only in public health terms, but very seriously boxed it in in economic terms. Hey, hey, can I just ask Neil, Neil and John a question really quick? You know, I, I, was, I was talking to some friends who, who think that China is in a real crisis in terms of food. And, and one of the theories is that many of these lockdowns are are because of food shortages and and a lockdown you know you get your bag of food for the week and that's it so have you heard any 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 reports about this i've heard just scattered reports about real constraints in food supply in china i don't think these are uh shortages uh they're more likely simply uh supply problems arising from the zero covid policy look i'm glad you mentioned uh food uh insecurity because we have a crisis of of that sort right now but it's in east africa and particularly in in somalia where my my wife comes from and they are they are staring famine in the face right now in the Horn of Africa. Uh, uh, we never talk about Africa on Goodfellas or hardly ever, uh, but it's right. also worth mentioning that also in East Africa, there is a, a raging uh, conflict uh, in, in Tigray province, which is probably killing as many people as the war in Ukraine. So this has given me a great opportunity to remind people that uh, disasters come in all shapes and sizes, wars, plagues, we talk about them on this show, economic disasters. 
But often the worst disasters in terms of casualties are the ones that happen in the poorest part of the world, which is still very much Africa. And you, then you have the unrest and the terrorists in, in West Africa, in, in, in Mali, Burkina Faso, and where you have the Russians quite active as well. Exactly. So I just want to add on, on China, there's, there's a, here, here's an example of, of uh, China's curious policy decisions. They have a glorious chance to say, look, we kept COVID out. Now we will vaccinate everybody and then we can open up and we won't have anybody dead. And look how beautiful the Chinese model is. And they're just simply the, the first step to opening is to vaccinating everybody. And clear the lockdowns are one of these things that are really producing a lot of discontent. So it's curious that they're so invested in the lockdown strategy, they can't say uh, the obvious thing. They're like many institutions in the US that have to always prove they were right in the first place, but they're, they have an easy way out. Now, it's we can forget about it so long as it stays completely mild, but COVID does um, keep mutating. Some geniuses at Boston University started doing gain of function research and managed to make COVID much more deadly. That was a bright idea, guys. Uh, we don't have to do that artificially. So we're, we're kind of over it so long as two things happen. It stays very mild. And so long as um, new var- new uh, boosters keep getting made, because it's going to keep keep mutating to keep us uh, mostly in this mild thing. And, and, you know, the last set of boosters happened very slowly. They're still not releasing the data on them. Uh, so we really need to have a, a national program of fresh boosters all the time. If this is going to stay mild, then we can keep forgetting about it. And let's not forget the long COVID problem. It's out there. It's substantial. A lot of people are affected. The science is still at a relatively early stage. But uh, we all, I'm sure, know people who've been hit extremely hard and for a prolonged period by COVID, including a young person, a recent Stanford graduate who's been completely uh, taken out uh, of uh, circulation for nearly two years by this disease. So, uh, yeah, I mean, as you're wandering around uh, the airports, uh, confident that it's over, spare a thought for the people for whom it really isn't. Yeah, over. It and, may, and, may not be know, over for a long time. I wear a mask in airports. There's the fact that you, Neil, back to our first show, uh, you, you pointed out historically, um, even in much more severe pandemics, the 1918 flu, the 1957 flu, that we didn't shut down economies. People suffered. People died. Uh, but the behavior was was not, you know, it wasn't lighthearted, but we kept going. And that may be the situation we're going to be in. Okay, let's close out the show. Uh, Neil Ferguson, question for you. Who is the shortest tenured British prime minister, British history, who served the least amount of time? Oh, that's so mean of you to ask me that when um, I'm feeling jet lagged, because I should know the answer to that. Uh, okay, 1963. The, it, it, oh, there you've got me there. Uh, Alec Douglas Hume. Alec Douglas Hume, you got it. One year, one day, hmm. Neil. So let's close out. Liz Truss, is she out before one year and one day, or does she survive past that milestone? Oh, she's not going to make it to one year, one day. I I, I can certainly, uh, I can see uh, she might make it to the end of the year, but I mean, you talk to some people in London and they're, they're not sure she'll make it to the end of the week. Um, it's interesting how these things work, but if you're really that far below the waterline uh, in the polls, and, and there's never been in the entire history of British opinion polling a larger opposition lead than Labour currently has, when you're in that situation, you're not long for this world as Tory leader. Okay. H.R. McMaster, the theocracy in Iran, longer than one year, one day? You know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I wish I knew. I thought you were going to ask me who was the shortest serving Trump national security advisor. And I would say, hey, it wasn't me, you know. But uh, I, I, so, because uh, there were a lot of them, you know. Um, 
yeah, I, I think uh, I think it's up in the air, you know, and, and of course, uh-huh. you know, it depends on how brutal the regime will be. And I think the big indicator to watch is are there cracks in 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 the Iranian security structure? I mean, are there elements uh, of the internal security police who begin to side uh, with uh, with the people because they they're just unwilling to brutalize their own citizens? John, we didn't talk much about inflation today, but longer than one year, one day. Well, are we still having inflation in a year? Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, I'll go with, uh, yes, inflation is still above 2% a year from now. Um, The Fed will, the one thing I know for sure is the Fed is going to keep raising rates as long as inflation stays high. And what we don't know is quite how soon inflation will come down or whether uh, additional shocks are going to make inflation keep going up again. Uh, but my, my bet is it's uh, there's enough embedded. It'll still be here for a year. I, I also no, want to point I, out, so we, we made a prediction a year ago, and it's worth doing. We discussed Meta, and the three of the four of us were very yeah. suspicious about how well this is going to work out. And there's a wonderful Wall Street Journal article this weekend about exactly what a disaster it is. Facebook's own employees don't use the thing. It's crashing. It's full of And uh, it's guys, all dudes. It's all badly dudes. Badly behaved dudes <laughs> for a simple reason. This stuff is successful because it's addictive. You just pick up your phone and do stuff. If you have to put on a big thing and say, oh, I think I'll waste half a day on this, no one's going to do it. I have a point of information. You are are, are wrong. The shortest serving uh, prime minister was not Alec Douglas Hume, maybe in the last 100 years. But if we go back 200 years, George Canning served a mere 119 days. I knew that couldn't be right. And at the back of my mind, I couldn't remember, was it Canning, Spencer Percival, who had the shortest tenure? But Canning was only there for 119 days. Will Liz Truss make that? I don't think so. Okay, well, I should have prefaced that as a shortest serving in modern times. So my correction, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, by the way, closing out a meta, there was an internal meta document that was mentioned that Wall Street Journal article, which came to this conclusion about meta, quote, an empty world is a sad world. And we will conclude on that sad note on Goodfellas this week. Gentlemen, thank you for bringing your own topics. We will be back uh, next week with a new show. And the week after that, we have a very special guest, our colleague Stephen Kotkin. He's a Hoover Institution Senior Fellow. Pretty much the brightest mind in any room when it comes to conversations about Russia and China. So I imagine we'll be engaging in geopolitics with him. So mark that in your calendar for the first week of November. And to make sure you never miss an episode of Goodfellas, subscribe to the show and leave us a nice review if you wouldn't mind. Give us plenty of stars. We thrive on that. On behalf of Hoover's Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, H.R. McMaster, all of us here at the Hoover Institution. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Thanks for watching. We'll see you soon. And go Phillies. Go Phillies. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.